Well, today we're going to go back to Acts 19, and we'll finish up Acts 19 today, and then we will go into Acts 20 next week. But as we start kind of getting towards the end of the book of Acts, just remember what the book of Acts is about and why we are studying the book of Acts. The book of Acts is all about, this is all it's about, it's about the acts of the Holy Spirit of God. It's not a book about the acts of the apostles because the apostles did jack diddly nothing without the Holy Spirit of God. It is a story about the Holy Spirit and followers, believers being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And then when they are empowered by the Spirit and they preach Jesus, then miraculous things happen. And that's all through the book of Acts. And we're going to see that today. We're going to see miraculous things happening through the power of the Holy Spirit as the name Jesus is preached. Now, here's the thing. God has not changed. So just the same He did in God's Word, through the Bible, and in the book of Acts, He will do again today. And the difference is not God. It is not the Holy Spirit. It is us. And so God is looking for believers, for followers, who will just simply give themselves to Him so that He can work through their lives, so that we can see and read the same things we see and read in the book of Acts. And so I believe with all my heart, God is going to do again exactly what He did in the book of Acts just before Christ Jesus comes to this earth. I believe the church will end the same way it began. And what we're reading in the book of Acts, we're going to see again in our day because I believe we're living in the last of the last days. I believe we're getting closer and closer and closer to the return of Jesus. And just before He returns, you're going to see exactly what we read about. So that's why we're reading the book of Acts. That's why we're looking at what God does here because He's going to do it again. If you don't believe that, just go read the book of Joel. Go read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. He says it. He says it. And so he's going to do it again. And so today we're going to read a story about something I pray he does again, and I pray he does again soon. As I told you earlier, we're going to have a revival just in a couple of weeks on March the 3rd. And so what I'm praying for that day, that Sunday morning and Sunday night, is God would just do again what he did in Acts chapter 19. And I know that most churches don't do revivals anymore, and people say they're outdated, and people have problems with them. Look, I long and I pray for revival. And I understand just because you put a date on a calendar doesn't mean that God's going to move. But when we put a date on a calendar and we pray and we come in preparation for God to move, I think we got a lot better chance than we sit on our butt and do nothing. How about you? I don't care if you believe it or not. That's reality, okay? And so we're going to do something and we're just going to pray and ask God to move. And today, what we're going to read is what we're going to ask God to pray and do. And so let me just kind of remind you what we talked about, because it's been a couple of weeks ago now. Acts chapter 19 is Paul's third missionary journey. He has been sent out again from the church of Antioch in Syria. And so we read about that earlier out of his first two missionary journeys. The Holy Spirit of God came and sat down upon that church where Barnabas and Paul, Saul at that point were leaders in the church. They were pastors, elders leading the church. And the Holy Spirit of God said, send them out and send them out with the gospel. And they went out. And so we've studied two missionary journeys that Paul has went on. And now he's on his third missionary journey, sent out by that same church, one of the most powerful churches in God's word. And so now on this third missionary journey, Paul has come to the city of Ephesus. That's where the primary focus of this journey is, this mission trip he goes on. And so Ephesus 
The reason the Holy Spirit of God calls them there is because Ephesus is a dark, 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 dark city. It is a demonic city, heavily demonized. And we know this basically two ways. We know this because of what Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, where he talks about the armor of God and what you need because you're not fighting against flesh and blood, but you're fighting against principalities and you're fighting against spirits that we cannot even see. And so he writes that back to Ephesus because he's experiencing it while he's in Ephesus. It is heavily, heavily demonized. And Paul is there ministering and he's sharing about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. And people are being saved. And the reason they are hearing the message of being saved is because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God gives Paul special powers, unique powers to perform miracles. And it just gives us one example of the miracles. They're multi-miracles because it says it in plural. But one of the examples, it says that Paul can be touched by a handkerchief or an apron is really what it means. And you know, Paul was a tent maker, so he would wear an apron to work. And so if that touched the skin of the Apostle Paul, then someone who was sick could touch it and they would be healed. That was just one example of the miraculous power God gave the Apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus. Now, why was that important? Well, there was a lot of magic and there were a lot of miraculous things people thought would happen. So God was showing what is true miracles from God on high and true power and not charlatans trying to trick people. And so people would see miracles like this, the Apostle Paul would perform, and they would believe the Word of God, and people were being saved over and over and over again. Well, you know what happens when God is at work? Who else is at work? Satan's at work. He wants to stop the move of God, just like God wants to move. And what leads into our reading today is just a story about seven charlatans, seven guys who would go around exercising demons. They would cast demons out of people because there were demons everywhere in this province of Asia, especially the city of Ephesus. And so what these guys would do, they were actually sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva. So they're called the seven sons of Sceva. And they would go from place to place and they would cast out demons and they would I'd probably tell people about their future and do all these different things, just kind of like psychics do in our day. And that's how they would make money. That's how they would make a living, just by tricking people. And so they come to Ephesus and when they get to Ephesus, they hear about the miraculous powers that Paul is doing there. And so they want to do the same things Paul's doing because he's having a lot of success and they think they can have success and make money off of it. So what they do is they start calling on the same God that Paul is calling on. They call upon the name of Jesus and they use the name of Jesus to cast out demons. They start doing that. And so there is some people that bring these seven sons of Sceva, a demon-possessed man, and they bring that demon-possessed man to the house where the seven sons are staying. And they asked the seven sons of Sceva to please cast out this demon. And so they begin to talk to the demon inside this man. And this is what they say. They say, in the name of Jesus, the one Paul talks about, be cast out. And that man starts to speak. But it's not the man who begins to speak. It's the demon inside that man that begins to speak. And so he says to these seven sons of Sceva, he says, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but I have no clue who you are. And then what he does next, the Bible says, is he beats them up. And not only does he beat them up, he takes all their clothes and he leaves them naked. And then they run away out of the house naked, ashamed, and afraid. Okay. 
How many of you have ever confronted a demon? Well, don't do it on your own power. Amen? Because that's what's going to happen to you. So they did not know Jesus. They didn't have Jesus. And this is what happens. But what happens next is even more amazing to me. So what we're going to do is we're going to start reading about what happens next in verse 17. So look there, Acts 19, 17. This is what Luke goes on to say. He says the story, that story about the seven sons of Sceva, the story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them in a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread wildly and had powerful effect. So verses 17 through 20 is just a story of what happens when God sends revival, when a mighty awakening, a move of God happens. And it happened here in Ephesus, one of the darkest cities in the world, one of the most demonized cities in the world. And listen to me, if it happened there, can it happen here? You better believe it can. And so that's why we should pray. And then when God moves, we will know He moves because He'll do the same thing He did in the city of Ephesus. So what did He do in the city of Ephesus? Well, just quickly, look at what He did. The Bible says as a story spread to Greeks and Jews, basically Gentiles, as the story spread, this is what happened. A solemn fear descended on the city. A solemn fear. Now, what does that mean, a solemn fear descended on the city? Does it mean that people were afraid of their life? Does it mean that they went into their house and they were cowering with fear because they thought something was going to happen to them? That's not what this means. This basically means respect or adoration or reverence for God. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And what, according to the Bible, is the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of what? It's the beginning of wisdom. And so when this city began to experience the presence of God, a solemn fear fell over this city. Now, to me, just to try to describe what a solemn fear means, I just want to read you some verses in the Bible because I think this is the clearest picture of what a solemn fear or adoration or respect a reverence for God means. It's in the book of Isaiah, and it's the Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah talking. And so just listen to Isaiah 6, what Isaiah says. He says, It was the year King Uzziah died, and I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with the other two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundation, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Now listen to verse 5. This is solemn fear. Isaiah says, Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed. 
For I am a man, a sinful man, and I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of the heaven's army. That's what it means to have reverence or a solemn fear of God. It's when you understand in the presence of God who He is and who you are. That's what it means. And if there's one thing our society needs, it is a solemn fear of God. Because there is no such thing as reverence for God anymore. And we need this. And how do you get this? You see the Lord. And how do you see the Lord when He falls and when His presence comes and when all you can do is get on your face before Him and understand who you are in His presence? That's what happened in this city of Ephesus, one of the darkest cities in the world. A solemn fear descended on them. But look what else happened. Not only did a solemn fear descend on the city, it says, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. The name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Now, wouldn't that be just a prayer for our day? Oh, my goodness. That's not something we have in our society. But that's something we should do and strive for as followers of Christ. Basically, this is just worship. That's all this is. It's adoration for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is giving Him the worship that He is due. Now remember, in this city of Ephesus where they are, they were used to worshiping something, and it wasn't the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a goddess. Her name was Diana or Artemis, and they had built a temple for her. And it was the largest structure in the world at the time. It was the temple of Artemis. And it was one of the seven wonders of the world. And people from all over the world would come there. And they would worship there. And who were they worshiping? The King Jesus? No, they were worshiping this goddess, Artemis, the fertility goddess, the twin sister of Apollo, the two kids of Zeus. And these were like the rock stars of the gods in the Greek world and Greek mythology. And so they would come and they would worship. And they would also do something else. They would also buy statues, silver statues. And they would take these silver statues home. And guess what they would do to these silver statues? They would worship them. It would be much like, have you ever been in a Buddhist home? Have you ever seen a Buddhist house? What do they all have in their home? They have like a little shrine of Buddha. They have a little statue that represents Buddha or represents the gods that they worship. Well, the same thing would have happened in Ephesus in that part of Asia, that part of the world. People would go worship Artemis in this temple. They would take home a silver statue and they would build a shrine and they would worship her all the time. And so what does the Apostle Paul do when he preaches Jesus Christ? He preaches about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he preaches about the true God, not a false God, not a God made by human hands. And when God falls in revival, what did the people do? They worshipped. They worshipped. Let me give you another example of worship here. Just like we talked about what the fear of the Lord is in Isaiah 60, this is what true worship is in Luke chapter 19. Let me just read to you what's happening here because most of you know because we're getting close to Easter. But this is at the triumphal entry as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, and of course he's riding in on a donkey. 
But just listen to what happens in Luke 19. It says in verse 36, As Jesus rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and to sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen through Jesus, basically. And this is what they said, Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like this. But Jesus replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would cry out in worship. That's worship right there. That's adoration. That's what the city of Ephesus was doing, just like the city of Jerusalem. But what happened to the city of Jerusalem in just a matter of a few days? Well, it can change, right? And it changes the city of Ephesus. We're going to read that later. It can change. But that's what true worship is. And that's what it means to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why when we come into church Sunday after Sunday, what do we do? Why do we start off our services? With worship. Because if we don't do it, guess what's going to happen? The rocks are going to cry out. And so isn't it better that we cry out and we honor the name of the Lord when revival comes? Not only will there be fear of the Lord, there will be worship. And let me tell you how you know you have true revival. God sent revival. Look back in Acts 19, verse 18. It says, many who became believers. Okay, that means that during this time, after this story of the sons of Sceva spread, many people came to Christ, came to faith in Christ. So many who became believers, confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them in a public bonfire. The value of the books were several million dollars. If you translate the way the Greek does it, it would be worth about $10 million in today's economy in America anyway. That's probably more than that with inflation, who knows? But it's a lot of money. But see, all these people that lived in Ephesus, they had these magic books. They had these books that they could cast spells or have incantations to get whatever they wanted. But when they heard about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, they understood their sins in light of a holy God, and they confessed those sins. And then did they repent of those sins? Yeah, they burned the books. It just means to turn. You're walking one way and you turn and go the other direction. That's all repentance means. And so they were walking in darkness and in magic and they burned that stuff and they started walking towards Christ. That's what true confession means. And guess where that starts? In churches who are seeking revival. It doesn't start out there. It starts in here. And when we get on our face and when we honor God and when we have a reverent, holy fear of God and we understand our sins in light of that and we confess those sins and repent of those sins, then what happens? I'll tell you what happens. The story spreads and other people hear the story and then God moves and a revival and awakening happens. Every time through the history of the church, that's how revival started. It started first with the repentance and the confession of sins of His people. And then it spreads like fire. 
And then people in a city and a nation do the same thing. But it doesn't start there, it starts here. And just like earlier I told you, churches aren't baptizing people anymore. Established churches, that's why we have to plant new churches. Established churches don't see God move anymore in revival and awakenings. In the history of the church, the history of the church, 2,000 years, there has never been a revival or an awakening in a place that has established Christianity. Now think about that for a moment. That's insane to me. But never in the history of the church has God moved like we see in the city of Ephesus in a place where Christianity is ordered established. Never. Why? Because we don't have a solemn fear of the Lord. And we don't honor Him and worship Him the way they did in Luke 19, the way they did in Acts 19. And we don't get on our face and confess our sins and turn to Him any longer. That's why. Is that not a sad reality? Well, that's a sad reality to me. I don't care if you believe it or not. It's reality. I studied it for four years in seminary. I studied evangelism and I studied revivals and awakenings. And it's never happened. And it's because of people like you and me. Because we're complacent. And we're apathetic. And we don't live out God's Word. And it's just reality. Now, does that mean God can't do it? Oh, God can do anything He wants. And does that mean because it's never happened, it won't happen? Nope. You think there had ever been a revival in Ephesus? Doubt it. God hasn't changed. We have. And we need to confess our sins and get right before Him. One more thing always happens when there's true revival. Verse 20. So the message about the Lord spread wildly and had a powerful effect. So whenever there is true revival, the Word of God always spreads. And how does it spread? In power. And what does it do? It changes and saves people. That's what it does. Every single time. Just go read about revivals throughout God's Word. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, did the Word of God spread and did it have powerful effect? You better believe it. It's estimated that with just in a year of the day of Pentecost, that there are almost a million believers around Jerusalem who have been come to Christ after the day of Pentecost. Think about that. That's power. Wouldn't you love to see that out of this church? That would be incredible. Go read Acts chapter 8. When Philip goes to the city of Samaria, and what does he do? He preaches the word of God there because he's been persecuted and he's been sent out. And what does he do? He preaches the Word of God. And God, through the Holy Spirit, sends power. And He is performing miracles. And what happens to the city in which He is living? It says the entire city of Samaria. There is joy in that city. Why? Because people are coming to Christ. God is moving. His presence has fallen. And an entire city is saved. That's what happens when God sends revival. Go read about Nineveh in the Old Testament. It's not just the New Testament. Go read about Nineveh, one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world. You want to talk about a dark city named Ephesus? Boy, Nineveh is darker than Ephesus. 
It was in the darkest places on this earth. Of course, God calls Jonah there. He don't want to go there. And God finally gets him there. And when he goes, he preaches a seven-word message. And all the message is, is God's going to judge you. That's the message. And he preaches it for three days. That's how long it takes him to go through the entire city preaching this message. God is going to judge the great city of Nineveh. And what do the people of that city do? A solemn fear of the Lord falls on them. And they get on their face and they take off their clothes and they put on sackcloth and they put on ash and they fast and they pray that God would save them and not judge them and destroy them. And what did God do? He saved them miraculously. And when the king saw the people doing it, what did he do? He did the same thing and he cried out to God and he cried out that God would have grace and forgiveness on them. And God did and he saved them in a miraculous way. If God did it then in Nineveh and He did it in Ephesus, can He do it now? Yes, He can. But again, who does it start with? You and me. And we have to do what they did in Acts chapter 19. And we have to fall on our face. And we have to worship. Like Isaiah, we have to see the Lord we have to understand His holiness. And I promise you, God has not changed according to His Word. He has not changed. So that's what I'm praying for two weeks on March the 3rd. I pray that a solemn fear would fall on this place of God. I pray that Jesus' name would be honored. I pray that we would confess our sins. And then I pray that the word of the Lord would spread from this place and would have powerful effect. Would you pray that? And not just say you pray that, would you really pray that? I mean, I tell you, what happens when you pray God's word? It just changed things. And why does it change things? Because you're, are you not praying the will of God if you're praying His word? You better believe you're praying His will if you're praying His Word. And what does Jesus Christ say if you pray the will of God? Everything you ask will be granted. Will it not? Is that not what Jesus says? It's what He says if you read it yourself. He says it. So why do we not pray the Word of God and believe that God will do what He says according to His will? This is His will for Northport Baptist Church. This is His will for this city, for this nation. I'm telling you it's His will. But where does it start? Is it God's heart? It's God's heart. But where does it start? God works through who? You and me. It starts with us. Has God not given us His Holy Spirit? Has He not given us power? Well, go read the book of Ephesians and see what Paul talks about, the power of the Holy Spirit. He's given us everything we need to change this world for His glory and honor. But we don't change the world. Why? There's a billion reasons. But because we don't live out what He says. It's as simple as that. So please live this out. Please pray this. And then when we come... I know it's a date on a calendar. But pray that God would move. 
and pray that His Word would move from this place and have great effect. Amen. Pray that. Pray that. Well, I'll go real quick just to finish Acts 19. But look at verse 21. This is what says afterward, because right after this great revival, the Bible says Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go over to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. And after that, he said, I must go on to Rome. He sent two assistants, Timothy and Erastus, ahead to Macedonia while he stayed a little while longer in the province of Asia. Now basically, these two verses here, they're just a summary of the rest of the book of Acts because this is what's going to happen the rest of the book of Acts. Paul is going to go to Jerusalem. And then guess what else? Paul is going to go to Rome. Now, he's not going to go to Rome the way he thought he was going to go to Rome, but he is going to end up in Rome. And so this is basically an outline for the rest of the book of Acts. So it just, I guess Luke just kind of gives you this snippet to summarize what's about to happen. But after the revival in Ephesus... This is what happens there in Ephesus, verse 23. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. Now again, what is the way? That is Christianity, as we would call it. That is just followers of Jesus Christ. And it goes by, what did Jesus Christ say? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one would come to the Father except by me. He says that in John 14 before the cross. So when you were talking about Christianity, you didn't call Christians Christians. They did in some parts of the world, like Antioch, but here they didn't call them Christians or little Christ. They called them the way. They're followers of the way, Jesus, the way. And so that's how it explains itself. So right after this incredible revival in Ephesus, this is what happens, serious trouble, because Satan wants to work just like God worked. So verse 24, it began with Demetrius, a silversmith, who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. Now remember those little, like Buddhas I told you people would get and they would take home? That's what Demetrius made. And guess what he made? A lot of money doing it. Because people from all over the world would come and when they would worship in the temple of Artemis, they would buy these silver statues, these silver shrines, and they would take them home and they would worship them. So not only did Demetrius, but a lot of people made tons of, Tons, tons of money off of the worship of Artemis. They made tons of money. And so what was Paul doing when he preached Christ Jesus? He was threatening their livelihood, right? He was threatening their money. He was threatening their business. And so you see this other places in Acts. And you see this when Paul cast out a demon of a demon-possessed girl who made their masters a lot of money, this little slave girl, by telling people's future because she was demonically possessed. So this happens all the time when Jesus comes and when people fall on their face and when they sell all their incantation books and they burn all those little goddesses of Artemis. Or of Artemis. So that's why the riot began. And what Demetrius did is he called together along with others employed in similar trades and addressed them as follows. Demetrius said, Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business but you have seen and heard this man Paul persuaded many people that these handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he has done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province of Asia. Now, how did Demetrius know that? Because word of what was happening was spreading all around. 
So word of what happened in Athens and Corinth and other places had spread as far away as Asia. Now, Asia is in Turkey. It is the province of Asia Minor. And Greece is where Athens and Corinth happened. So these are long distances, but people travel back and forth because they were trade routes and trade cities. And people were talking about what Lord Jesus Christ was doing, saving people, and how he was working through this man Paul, preaching about him. So that's how he knew. And he says, of course, I'm not talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. Now, do you think he's really worried about that? That's just a pack of crap's all he's saying. He's worried about his money, but it sounded better to talk about Artemis because everybody respected and worshipped her. That's what he's talking about. But did you catch the language there? Where is she worshipped? She's worshipped all over the province of Asia, but where else? All around the world. So do you understand what a miracle it was for people to honor the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in this city of Ephesus? I hope you do. I don't think you do. But it was incredible. It was a miracle of God. And this is what happened when Demetrius gets the riot stirred up. Look at verse 28. At this, their anger boiled, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion, and everyone rushed the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Estratus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent him a message begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Now, all this was, was a riot. Now, a few years ago, even here in our country, we saw riots all over TV. You saw uh, Black Lives Matter riots and different riots in different cities. And what is a riot? It's just people going in, and is there mass confusion? Boy, there's mass confusion. And people are burning things, and they're destroying things, and they're saying things that they don't even know what they're saying. And it's really interesting here, we'll read it, but it's really interesting here how the mayor in just a minute describes a riot, because it's exactly what happens here in the U.S. and anywhere in the world this happens. But they basically come to an amphitheater where Demetrius is talking now, I want you to get a feel for this amphitheater because this is the largest amphitheater in the world at this time and probably one of the largest amphitheaters in the world ever. It's seated over 25,000 people. And so, of course, they would do plays there and they would do different things there. But Demetrius got a crowd there, 25,000 people, and got them riled up. And he brought in believers. What do you think they were going to do to these believers? They are going to kill them. And so Paul wanted to go in and try to talk to them. And I'm sure he wanted to preach the gospel to them. But somehow he was convinced not to. But this is what happened inside. Verse 32. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. Is that not what a riot is? They don't even know why they were there. That's true. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. 
He motioned for silence and tried to speak, but when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for two hours. Now think about that. They're shouting for two hours, and they don't even know what they're shouting about. But they shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours they shouted this. At last the mayor was able to quieten them down enough to speak. He said, Citizens of Ephesus, Everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis whose image fell down from heaven. Now, what does that mean? And we don't know exactly what that means, but more than likely what this means, where they built the temple of Artemis was probably where a meteorite fell. And they believe that that's how they received this image of Artemis from God because a meteorite fell here and then they built a temple there at that place. That's what it more than likely means. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and do not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from this temple and have not spoken out against our goddess. Okay, I think this is really important, especially for the church in America. When Paul went to the city of Ephesus, did he slander the goddess Artemis? Did he tell people, boy, you're stupid for worshiping her? No, he didn't speak out against anything. What did he do? He spoke for Jesus, right? And maybe that is something the church in America should model. I mean, one of the reasons we have lost our power and lost our effect is because most churches don't preach Jesus. You know what most churches do? They preach against other things. Right? I mean, we're good at that. We can preach against abortion. We can preach against homosexuality. We can preach against pornography. I mean, it's on and on, and the list is endless in our society of things we can preach against, right? Because there are a ton of sins, and there are a ton of things that people do that are sinful in our society. And is that not what the church has done for probably the last 50, 60, 75 years? We've preached against things rather than preaching for Jesus. Has it worked? No. So maybe we should preach Jesus and do what Paul does and preach about the kingdom of God. That's how it starts in Ephesus. He is preaching about the kingdom of God. He's not preaching against anything. Even the mayor says it. He hasn't taken anything with the temple or preached against our great goddess Artemis. He didn't do that. He preached Jesus and what it means to believe in Jesus and how your life is changed when you follow Jesus. And he preached about the kingdom of heaven and what our hope is as followers of Christ. That's what he preached. And what happened in the city? A revival happened, and God failed, because that's what Paul did. So again, maybe we should do that. Because Jesus is what changes people. Not our preaching. Not our boycotting. Jesus changes lives. 